You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 770 CHQR. Welcome to The Strong Room, presented by Macmillan Estate Planning. I'm Wayne Nelson. On today's program, we're going to be talking about the importance of an enduring power of attorney and personal directive. My guest today is Macmillan Estate Planning Legal Counsel, Henry Villanueva. And Henry, before we start into power of attorney and personal directive, we need to clarify that they are just two parts of estate planning. Correct. Uh, For every family, we recommend that uh, they each have three legal estate planning documents. And these are your last will and testament, number one. Number two being your enduring power of attorney. And number three being the personal directive. The first document, the last will and testament, will kick in or take effect after we pass away or kick the bucket. The two other documents, the power of attorney and the personal directive, will kick in during our lifetime while we are still alive. However, we may be a little bonkers, Wayne. Right. We, have, we don't have the capacity to make legal decisions. We have a mental incapacity. Uh, and it could be through something like Alzheimer's. Correct. So these two documents, the enduring power of attorney and the personal directive, will kick in upon us losing mental capacity to make reasonable judgments in regard to our affairs. Who is going to be appointed as power of attorney? Well, the individual appointed as an attorney is likely someone who we have a lot of trust and faith in. And that's why we usually have multiple levels. The first level is usually the surviving or the spouse rather uh, in a relationship. And the second level is usually the kids. And we may also have another level, which could be an independent third party or an organization such as Macmillan Estate Planning. Now, you mentioned spouse. What about common law spouse? Can a common law spouse also be included as the primary attorney? Yes, a common law spouse may be included and appointed as an attorney. And if um, the two individuals are not married, usually they do appoint each other. And they also occasionally appoint uh, a sibling to be uh, a power of attorney as well. And why would that be? Well, things happen in life, and uh, just to make sure that there's peace of mind for the families, they add uh, a family member in addition to a common-law spouse, uh, and that's because they are unsure of what the future may behold. Understandable. All right, so now we have power of attorney, uh, primary appointment, usually, as you said, the spouse, and then the children, uh, and then an independent third party uh, can be appointed. Do the same kind of uh, rules apply as they did in, or as they do in a will in which you have to have consensus. Correct. Uh, You may choose a power of attorney to just be one individual, or it can be two individuals at the same level, or you can have uh, multiple individuals on the same level as well as a power of attorney. Now, what that means is if you have one individual then decisions are easily made by that person. However, if you have two or more, then you may need uh, rules that say majority rules, or you may need a rule that says everybody must make a unanimous decision, 
And if the number is even, you may need a tiebreaker as well. All right. And in this case, a tiebreaker could be that independent third party like McMillan Estate. Correct. Henry, let's talk about how mental incapacity is determined. Okay. Now, this is a very sensitive topic. Uh, an individual's mental capacity is not something everybody just um, can freely throw around. And that's why for someone to be determined mentally incapable, uh, the power of attorney document would usually require the signature of the appointed attorney plus the signature of the doctor or psychologist. Now, there are many things to consider here. First of all, the attorney is fine. We would always want the attorney to sign off. But in regard to that doctor or psychologist, you have quite a couple of options. The doctor or psychologist may need to sign just by consulting with the attorney over the phone maybe, or you may require the doctor to examine that individual in person. Now, my knowledge of legal determination usually requires some kind of supportive documentation. Would that be the case if a doctor is to make a determination over the phone that you would need that supportive documentation to go along with it? Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why we more often recommend the doctor uh, do an examination in person. And that's because we would need the doctor to sign a form uh, essentially stating that he has examined the individual and the individual, according to the doctor's professional opinion, uh, is in a state of mental incapacity. All right. So you've got that documentation and it is all clearly spelled out while you still have mental capacity. Now, what happens when you start losing that that capacity to make solid, sound judgments. Uh, what does a power of attorney cover? What kind of, you, you mentioned it has everything to do with, with the money side of things. So what are those powers? Mm -hmm. The power of attorney uh, dates way back in history where powers of attorney documents were pretty simple, straightforward, and all they mentioned was, Anything and everything I can do, my power of attorney can do in my place instead. Well, gone are those days where simplicity was the be all and end all. Now these power of attorney documents are pretty, um, I don't want to say lengthy, but they're more verbose. Uh, the powers or the scope of the power of attorney are varied and they're customizable according to the family or individual. But usually these would include powers uh, regarding maintenance, education, benefit, medical care, general advancement of you and your spouse. It also covers important um, affairs such as payment of taxes, CRA matters, uh, also dealings with land titles or real estate, dealings with your recreational property, maybe in BC or Ontario, as well as banking and finance investments, as well as insurance. So that attorney who has been appointed by you when and when you become mentally incapacitated, could go to your bank and say, hey, I'm taking over the affairs. Correct. And that's what usually happens. Mr. Appointed Power of Attorney will flash this fully executed Power of Attorney document in front of Mr. Bank Manager and say, Mr. Bank Manager, I want to withdraw $10,000 from this guy's bank account. And the bank manager has to comply. 
Exactly. As long as the power of attorney document is fully executed, the bank manager has no option other than to release the funds accordingly. Now, when you are preparing a power of attorney document, Henry, should you be considering restricting the power of that attorney in that, some way. That's a very good point, Wayne. And because from our discussions, the power of attorney's powers are very uh, wide, uh, we include restrictions in these documents. Essentially, what do you not want your attorney to be able to do? Examples of these restrictions are restrictions on the sale of a primary home, restrictions on the sale of one's business, as well as restrictions on the use of recreational property, and more importantly, restrictions on the revision of any will or estate plan that has been established. That would seem to be very important. Exactly. And what about compensation? Does the attorney get any kind of compensation for looking after the affairs? Uh, usually the attorneys do receive compensation and it's because they have done work. A power of attorney will have the hard task of running errands, going from bank to bank, withdrawing money, paying utility bills, taxes, and so forth. And for that reason, they're entitled to compensation. However, if a family member such as a spouse or children are acting as power of attorney, from my experience, they do not charge fees. All right. And if fees are charged, or perhaps even if they're not charged, should there be any kind of accountability, a reporting uh, uh, form? We do recommend that uh, there be a, a reporting mechanism to ensure that there's accountability, transparency, and to minimize litigation in the future. If only one of the kids is appointed as power of attorney, I want to make sure that the brothers and sisters know what's happening with regard to mom and dad's money. All right. Thanks, Henry. We'll be back in a moment with Macmillan Estate Planning Legal Counsel Henry Villanueva. You're listening to The Strong Room on 770 CHQR. <laughs> 